Coming live from Quincy, Massachusetts, USA is our guest this afternoon. Welcome to this very special edition of the KJ Masterclass Live, the show which ensures that you profit from your time spent here with experts, either through their industry insights, information, or simply learning from them. And today we have Eric Messon, Chief Financial Officer for Quincy, Massachusetts. He's also an economist and he also a TEDx speaker. In his current role as Chief Financial Officer for Quincy, Massachusetts, he manages a $345 million budget and $1 billion debt portfolio. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you. I'm happy to be on. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank you. You know, Eric, today is a very special day when we are talking. It's our Independence Day, 75th Independence Day in India. You know? Happy Independence Day. Yes, thank you. The world's largest democracy. And you are managing, you are the CFO of a city called Quincy, which is, you know, which gave two precedents yeah. to the largest, to the biggest democracy of the world. John Hancock, the, the largest signature on the Declaration of Independence is from Quincy, too. Right. So we love, we love sovereign independence up here. Yeah, right. So the second president and the sixth president, yeah. father and son. Yeah. So that's why it, it makes a special day when we talk. And when we talk economics, we talk people. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we will talk about. And that's what you focus on. Okay. So my first question itself is Eric. You know, you want to talk about everyday economics. You promote everyday economics. You know, you want people to learn about economics, help them learn a bit about uh, economics. Now, why do you want them to learn economics? I think economics is a great job of explaining everything. Um, and I think one of the problems in economics, and I think it's something that, you know, is probably a shortcoming of the field, is that we tend to make it an academic pursuit. We tend to make it somewhat elitist, and it's not. Economics is a field that anybody can understand. All it is is, a rash, is trying to rationalize every decision. Um, and when it comes down to it, that's going to make every part of an individual, from their financial to political and personal life, better. If they understand how we think and how we trade goods and resources. Um, and you know what? I'm one of those big believers. We're all better off if we're all better off. So somebody else understanding economics is great. That, that's going to help me out too. So um, one, of the, one of the reasons I'm such a proponent of everyday economics is because uh, maybe I'm a little selfish. It helps me out if you're better at it too, or if anybody else is better at it. Right, right. So from a common man's perspective, you know, if you help them, want to help them to understand economics, the reason also is that it impacts them every day but not everybody knows how deeply it impacts them yeah. you know for some people it may be buying gas for some yeah. people it may be buying groceries for some people it might be when paying taxes yeah. from you who manages a city the finance of a city you know you tell us how it impacts you know people day to day that will be something you know from the man himself who is dealing with people and not just with numbers. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, numbers are, are great, but it's really how we can impact people's lives. Um, and one of the things I've loved working in local government, and it's what my TEDx talk was on, 
is uh, just how impactful a government decision can be made. Um, but, you know, when it comes to, like you said, India, the world's largest democracy, uh, what we have, economics gives us the ability to rationally view politics and rationally view policy. So, like, if somebody's up there telling you uh, policy, whether at the local, state, uh, provincial, or even national level, by being able to understand what their policies are and how they're going to impact you, well, that study is economics. And by being able to adopt everyday economics, even as a, you know, what some people might just call a John Q. public, um, you can make better and more informed decisions. I mean, economics affects everything from, you know, financial policy down to the two for one deal uh, for a pizza down the street. And so being able to really, especially the microeconomics of it, of any uh, any field can really help you accelerate you to better to make better decisions. And that's really what economics is, helping everybody make better decisions. Right, right, uh, Eric. So you see, e economics, do you see it's more about people? Yeah. Or is it about, you know, numbers, demand, supply, market? Uh, <laughs> where Where is the problem that, you know, people are, uh, economics has shifted more towards market yeah. and it's all becoming, you know, market oriented and people don't get the real aspect of economics when it is supposed to make their lives better. You yeah. tell, tell us uh, as much freely as you can, because I know you are a CFO of a uh, big city, you know, but look, try to look at it more from an economist point of view and how you know there can be a, some course correction. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So like, um, I'm a very Austrian, I have a very Austrian view on economics. Um, and uh, Frederick Hayek, who's the founder of, the, of Austrian economics, he has this thing called man on the spot, which is the person who is making the decision, no matter who you are, you're taking money out of your pocket and you're handing it to somebody else. Um, you know more about the economy, your personal economy, than the best economist ever lived. All, you know more about your economy than every other economist in the world. And I have a lot of respect for that man on the spot, that person on the spot. And what do you call the, everybody in the economy, every person on the spot? If you total that together, it's the economy. So to understand how to make that person who is taking their money out of their pocket and handing it over for food, for fuel, for a car, for education, if we can make that person better, think, think like an economist, we're going to get better outcomes. So what I always tell people, because they, they think, like, listen, I can I can do math, I can code, uh, I can I, we're all classically trained in econometrics. So yeah, I can fire up a computer and give you some outlandish uh, model that can tell you five thousand different things that you'll never need to know. I don't want people to be put up put off by that. The the most beneficial step is the first step. So understanding why you're taking your money out of your wallet or out of your purse or wherever, and handing it to somebody else. That's exchange. That is economics in its purest sense. And to be able to understand and make better decisions in that standpoint, that really benefits us all. But it's just exactly what you said. It's the people. The money's worth the same. The car's worth the same. The marketplace is the same. It's the person that we need to understand. And it's the person that needs to understand themselves in that situation. Right. Right, Eddie. So you see, you as, as you believe, as you say, that every decision, you know, people make, that's all decided by economics, you know, from what car to buy to which companies to invest in and how even how long they should jog on a treadmill. Now, uh, what do you exactly mean by that? And was economics supposed to do this, that they got to know about, about 
how long they are jogging on a treadmill rather than making them a better treadmill or a much more better sort of a society where there is less poverty. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So um, we, we have this thing in economics called marginal return. And what marginal return is, is basically a fancy way to say, how much now that you're doing one more thing, how much are you getting back for? And so we always say marginal return should equal zero. You should try and maximize everything you do from the number of uh, how much food you eat to how, how long you jog on a treadmill or, or what have you. That you, you should only do things until you maximize their benefit. And I have to, and that that whole field's microeconomics. And I have to say that that's one of the reasons I fell in love with economics is because it's like it teaches you when to not just when to go, but when to stop. There's so many people who pour so much time and effort. Where they've already maximized something, where they've all already hit hit the hit the absolute best return they're going to get. Sometimes you see that in education, where people get perpetually educated. Um, sometimes you see that in fitness, where people perpetually work out, and you've already re- reaped the maximum benefits. And so, anything else you're doing in that field, you could take that time and apply it to something else, learning to paint or learning a new subject or what have you. Um, and, and I think that people think economics is usually like money driven, and it's usually a a political it has a political tent to it, but actually the vast majority of economics is to help you in your day-to-day life and to make you as an individual, you a more efficient person and make better decisions. Right. Right, Eric. Now, let me try and understand through you how uh, cities are managed, their finances are managed uh, from people, by people like you in terms of $345 million and then $1 billion uh, extra in terms of debt. Now, you tell us how does the day-to-day function of a U.S. city like yours, and I'll understand from that, you know, India has a bit of a different system, but how it works from your at your end, and through that we'll understand the U.S. system better. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, <clears throat> what, so the top uh, official in the city, sometimes called the CEO, chief elected official, is the mayor. Um, and in, in our former government, we have um, all appropriations and spending flow through the mayor, as well as all major policy. And uh, we have a city council that acts, um, you know, that, that, that holds meetings um, several times a year. I think they, they have about 40 sessions a year. Oh, they pass laws and do all that stuff. And then from an administrative standpoint, um, that is overseen by our mayor. Um, I oversee all the finances. So anything with a dollar sign, I always joke, is something that... Uh, I'm usually involved in. I have an amazing support staff, um, and there's many different departments that deal with money from assessors to treasury, and they're all their own independent functioning units. Um, they're, they're very good. But from a spending dollars, well, for my role, it's you revolve around two things, capital planning and budgets. So budget is what makes sure we pay for our police, our fire, our teachers. We have about 10,000 students in our school district. It makes sure that um, we have uh, the roads are paved, all that. Then we have large capital projects. We've built several new schools. We're building a new public safety building. Um, we're investing in roads and sidewalks. Um, so every dollar is either being spent on operations or on capital. So we're either trying to build something big that is going to be used for years and years and years to help make uh, the constituents of the city you know, more efficient, get to work or enjoy recreational time. We spend uh, a lot of money and we have a lot of really, really nice parks. Um, where Our mayor is a huge fan of parks. Um, is where you got to start in government. And, you know, what I'll say during the pandemic, the parks were amazing how much use they got. It was, that investment ended up paying ten, tenfold. 
Uh, but in terms of what some of the listeners might find interesting is that a lot of government, a lot of finance in your government um, is already very well planned out. Well before, well before that dollar arrives into the coffers from your tax collection, we already know very procedurally where it's going to get spent. And local government, especially in the United States, is very heavily audited at, by state, um, federal, and at the actually independently at the local level. And I think that's good. I think when people are looking at their their governmental dollars, I think that's a positive thing. Like, I, like I'm, I'm one of those people where I'm like, I, you can call me up any day. I'll tell you where every dollar is and stuff like that because, um, you know, it's so pre-planned that there's actually probably already something posted on our website telling you where that dollar is going to go. Uh, so a lot of it is planning. A lot of times we're planning well before. We start our budget process six months before the budget even gets passed. Um, and our capital planning is done over a five-year rolling CIP. And personally, I think that's a good system uh, because it allows us to use more advanced modeling and more advanced analytics. Because if you're planning for something years down the road, that gives you time to really use advanced financial and economic models to try and predict where those numbers are going to be. And that, that just gives you more time to plan. And planning is the most valuable asset we have. Right, right. So does the system work almost the same way uh, across the U USA in their cities? Like you have 17, if I understand, there are around 17 Quincy's in all over USA itself. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, there's about, if you take our size, 110 to 125. Um, yeah, you mean, yeah, you're about right right in that range. Um, okay. No, so uh, my wife is... Uh, my, my question is that whatever, if that is correct or not, or roundabout, do all the Quincy's have the same sort of structure or is it different in different states? No, it's different in different states and even different in different parts of, of states. Uh, my wife is from the southeast of the United States. Um, so okay. they, they don't have local government. They have counties, which are okay. you know, oversee big areas. Um, in Massachusetts, we have two forms. We have Chapter 44 and Chapter 53, uh, where they don't even have a CFO. They just have a town accountant. And those are for really smaller communities. And then you go out west to California, and you have some of the largest, I mean, LA County is one of the largest governments in the world, let alone local, just no qualified. I mean, they, they have a you know, massive, several billion dollar budget. Um, and then you go into the like the Midwest, and they have you know, large counties, but sometimes the counties don't have government, that they're part of these like six or seven counties are put together and regionalized. Um, so yeah, no, it's different all over the all over the country. Uh, where we are, we have the most like developed form of local government, uh, where we have like, we have city councils, we have mayors, we have, we run like a corporation, we have a CFO ship, we have, you know, chief legal counsel, stuff like that. Uh, so we have like the most evolved form just because we've been around forever. I mean, Quincy was founded in 1625. So I know that's not old for a lot of parts of the world, but in, in the United States, we, we were founded five years after the, the pilgrims arrived. Um, so we've, been, we, we've had a lot of time to refine this. <laughs> right, right, Eric. Now, when you look at numbers, you are the person who knows exactly uh, how much money you got in your hands. What are the demands? What are the plans? And what uh, what the mayor wants, what is possible, what is not possible, you got the real picture uh, better than anybody else. Perhaps if I can tell you, it's like any other any other company. The CFO knows it all. Okay, yeah. now you have your eyes and ears both to the ground. You know the numbers in the real sense. Now, 
you see poverty also now the number of people getting into poverty what is your understanding you know what causes unemployment and then it leads to poverty can you tell as an economist and somebody who sees real life uh, such a sort of thing happening not that anybody is you know uh, responsible for it but you see it that is the same sort of a thing which happens uh, across your country and perhaps in the larger part of the world we'll leave the politics aside at the moment but in terms of numbers what exactly do you think is the reason yeah i you see uh, and this is a question i get a lot on on uh when i'm lucky enough to come on shows like this and uh it's 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 a complicated answer but what i my personal viewpoint on it is poverty is one of the most i'd say i would say it is the saddest aspect of inefficiency um when economies experience inefficiencies inefficiencies whether it's public policy whether it's misalignment of resources whether it's exploitation of resources um the aftermath is poverty and that's one of the reasons i am so strongly free market in, in Austria and a lot of my viewpoints is because systems that encourage inefficiency encourage poverty. It is an unmistaken aspect of economics. You can, no matter what political philosophy you subscribe to, um, if a system is inefficient, it is going to increase the amount of people left by the wayside. Um, and I find that disturbing. And I see, I find economics to be one of the solutions to try and end poverty. And if we look at the global rise in development over the last 80 years um, since the end of World War II, we can see that you know there has been massive gains by a lot of uh, all around the world with the what's considered poverty rising up, like uh, the the amount of what we define as abject poverty um, is that the, the standard of living, even for the incredibly uh, less fortunate, is is rising. Whether that it needs to rise a lot faster, I don't want to downplay any of that. It needs to be stronger. Uh, we need better policies to, to encourage uh, lifting people out of poverty. Uh, but I think it's an efficiency. I think when in it, I'm not one of those individuals that thinks it's a one thing's causing poverty. I, I don't. I think it's unique to everywhere in the world. I think there's localized issues that cause poverty. I think there's global issues that cause poverty. I think barriers to trade is one of the largest things that causes poverty in the world. Um, like I think tariffs can induce poverty in developing nations uh, because what you're doing is you're removing the trade advantage. In economics, in, in, cap, in free markets, in capital markets, we love trade. Trade's the best thing in the world because you can specialize in something, I can specialize in something, I can make it cheaper, you can make it cheaper, then we can trade and have both have extra money to go spend elsewhere, which can induce development in other countries. In, I think something that doesn't get talked about a lot, um, and I know India went through this a few years ago, is kind of misaligned currency policies um, I think when you have a debanked country, um, you know, and then you try and mess around with currency, I think that can put a lot of people who were just getting ready to climb, boom, just drops them right back down the ladder. Um, it, it, I mean, it's, it's so I think there's a few different policies, but anything that makes it, we should be trying to get, gain efficiencies. The more efficient we become, the more people that we lift out of poverty. So I, I, don't, I, I know that, that was maybe too much of an economist answer, but I think it's inefficiency that causes it. Right, right. Now, in terms of efficiency, is it because more technology is coming in or is it, is it, see, I understand as a layman, I don't know, I have just studied a bit of economics in, you know, higher secondary, class 12, till class 12. 
and then I moved into political science, masters in political science from University of Delhi, because I didn't have, I didn't, I was not very good with numbers, so obviously they would not, I would, I couldn't go for. Yeah, you, um, you're, you're impressing me, okay? <laughs> yeah, okay, but I, I understand just a bit in terms of a, from a human perspective. Now, whatever I understand, little bit of economics is that when countries were there, nobody thought of it that. You correct me if I'm wrong or my understanding is, you know, incorrect. It was not so much of a global world. And your economics was supposed to ensure that whatever policies you implement, they are to a larger extent for the country itself and you manage things accordingly. There was something called the comparative cost advantage. Yeah. That you went for some things where it was advantageous for you to go outside, whether it was outsourcing or even in terms of manufacturing your products. But if a country like US, and here I'm not talking about geopolitical, uh, you know, geopolitics and all, but if a country like US or to a great extent, even India started getting uh, dependent on China, or to a great extent, other parts of the world. You know, now where these countries supposed to have their economies or the people to fulfill the demands of the rising number of manufacturing industries in a particular country, it's like, you know, feeding a, you know, I'm talking about feeding a monster, all yeah. those factories. That is, so I, my understanding is that it went beyond the comparative cost advantage because then that is where inefficiencies came in. Because if you were producing it for your, that is why outsourcing became a political issue also. How do you look at it purely from a humanitarian angle, purely from a, purely from a people's perspective? Because do you really think that poverty is necessary for capitalism and there should be only talk about maximization of profit? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, I think why I, I am such a fan of capitalism and free markets is because poverty doesn't need to exist. Um, you can make a system more and more efficient. Um, that's what capitalism allows for, where other economic systems don't. You need to climb on top of somebody else to climb up in a system that isn't actively trying to become more productive. Uh, well, you, the other thing, uh, you, you kind of hit it right on the head. Actually, not kind of, you did hit it right on the head. Um, outsourcing becomes has become political um, and sometimes that can skewer the economics of what we're actually doing which is exactly like that, that competitive advantage uh, comparative cost advantages we go which is 100 um well there's comparative cost advantage and the something we also have we, we have an economics called absolute cost cost advantage and uh, that, that's exactly what you're talking about with uh, uh what's happening in in china to a great and as a greater extent the global economy where we have certain uh manufacturing hubs what I do find interesting is that well, the well, the United States imports about fifty percent of all its goods from China. China actually imports fifty-four percent of all raw material from the United States. Um, so there's trade going back both sides. I think that's often something that gets overlooked in this discuss in that type of discussion. Um, <clears throat> but in terms of outsourcing, like I, this was happening a lot during the pandemic when we, we uh, as supply chains chains started falling apart, and there's a lot of a great industrial and organizational economists who are talking about what we call intensification of labor and intensification of economies. Um, the reason the United States doesn't manufacture uh, in large scale, doesn't manufacture most common household goods 
is because labor in the United States has become too expensive. Um, if you look at like the, the capital per individual, per, or capital uh, capital per capita, which is a mouthful to say, in the United States, it's really, really, really high. And production is just a combination of labor and capital. That's all production everywhere in the world is. So as capital investments become much higher in an economy uh, per person, you're going to end up seeing that labor becomes more and more expensive. It's productive, but it makes it inefficient to make, say, a microwave that, that can hit the market. Um, the microwave have to be outrageously expensive. But what that does, it pushes jobs to other areas of the world. But uh, you, you hit something right on the head is that people, we're making decisions based on the country level, not on the global level. It, yes. Personally, I like making decisions at the country level because I think that causes competition between countries. And that that's, competition is good for both people. It, it makes people work harder. Um, so there's this beautiful economic dance that occurs all across the world. And what happens is that sometimes people become territorial. Sometimes people, uh, they don't want to engage freely in trade for for reasons other than economic reasons. And that is inefficiency in a nutshell. And it's bore by the people of each nation are both worse off because there's these barriers to trade. Um, I think barriers to trade and barriers to immigration can, can hurt economies a lot. Um, and I think when you hurt an economy, you hurt everybody in it, but particularly you hurt the poorest people. Um, so yeah, there's this, like you, you described it better than I did. There's, there's this beautiful dance all going all across the world right now where people are trying to figure out how we can all be better off. Yeah, because see, for example, you make your budget, your finances according to the needs of your city. Yeah. yeah. Now, if it has to suddenly or even uh, together, it has to take care of other places, you know, uh, then your whole economics go haywire. How do you plan according to that? You can't. You, it will be very difficult for you to plan and manage it because all numbers will be some, some you know we all be dubious then it will not work for you in the same way globally it works for example i'm asking you from as a as an economist how do you see that and i'm sure these countries must be having brilliant economists there itself is it the politics or uh, or, or or something else uh, countries like pakistan countries like sri lanka yeah. even there is a scare uh, in Bangladesh, that it may all face the same problems. Just didn't the economists, they see it long coming? Or was it that they just baited that COVID will come and things will just come in the open? Uh, why, why it has happened suddenly? What do you see the trend in terms of, you know, uh, globally, you see countries are not able to comprehend what lies for them in future. How do you see it? As an economist of a large, a large city, you know, yours yeah. is seventh largest, I guess, in Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, to put on my, you know, it's, it's funny because my original, my background before I got into the public sector was labor economics. So now it's like labor, public and finance. Uh, so, but I'm going to go back to kind of my, my roots and go to the labor side of that. Um, I don't, uh, there are far br more brilliant economists than I in Pakistan, in Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka, in any country. Uh, I'm probably the smartest economist just in this room. And it, that, that, that's it. That, that, that's the highest, this empty room besides me in it. <laughs> um, but what I, I think it is, it's, pe it's people. Um, I think it's the brain drain. I think a lot of these countries that you listed off, 
I think some of the smartest individuals leave. I think there's a lot. I think a lot of them immigrate to India. I think a lot of them immigrate to the United States, to Japan, to South Korea, uh, even Australia. Australia had a like, population increased like 20 percent since 2010. A lot of those like through immigration. I, I think that's what's happening is that they're not seeing the prosperities of staying in the, the, their home countries. So the smartest people who drive your economic growth, um, who are the people who innovate, create new businesses, who are become your doctors and become your engineers, they're leaving. They're leaving for better opportunities. And part of that, but it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because the more capital an economy is, the more that labor is valued. The more that labor is valued, the more they can produce, which means people will invest more capital in there. Uh, so what these other nations have to do is they need to, they need to derive a trade advantage. Um, they can do that through having more lower having no or low tariffs, and from weakening their currency. Weak currencies are good for trade. Um, so these countries may be thinking, my only solution is to really devalue my currency and try and get a trade advantage but that can lead to a myriad of other issues like hyperinflation um, lack, lack of ability to immigrate uh, lack of ability for internal tourism internal movement uh, and when you talk about devaluing currency for trade you're really moving the economic system towards commodity producers um, you're not it really dissuades people from doing more advanced um, styles of you know, like what we call intensified economic activity, which would be like lawyers and engineers. Um, so I think it's kind of a spiral where once you lose the good people in your nation, um, you end up losing your future. Uh, that's right. I'm a big believer and that's what happens. Okay. Okay, Eric. Now talking of, you know, countries now, a lot of globally, there is this uh, whole concept of talks about governments holding power within themselves I'm talking about cryptocurrencies <laughs> because almost everywhere that I've talked, I've had a couple of discussions. I've heard a couple of people talking everywhere. The biggest uh, reasons that they are getting that uh, giving out is that some banks globally or in countries or governments are holding too much of, you know, this power within their hands and that is not actually fully democratic. The biggest reason is that if you go for, you know, cryptocurrencies, the technology, blockchain technology, then it creates a better playing field for everybody across the world. And it will be a egalitarian society in terms of anybody can transact and you can transfer your money uh, without, you know, actually carrying it. And it is the safest mode in the world. Now, there are two questions. Do you see that actually it's that case? Secondly, is it a th threat in a way for democracies across the world? Like in India, we haven't adopted. We don't even call it a currency. We just call it a crypto, maybe a digital asset. The only currency we have right now is the Indian national rupee. So one is that, that in terms of the reasoning that they are staying everywhere, for whatever reason, there are more than 8,000 cryptocurrencies at the moment. And yes, uh, so is that is that talk leading to a lot of discomfort or moving towards a different direction? Because telling that, listen, governments are not give, doing anything for you because they are holding the power of you know currency within their hands. Or it is they, they won't let you. Then banks are charging you a lot of money or whatever reasons along with that. So how do you see, do you see at all that they can replace national currencies 
How do you see that sitting from at that corner of the world? Yeah, I, I think the like whenever uh, whenever I'm on this conversation, I think I go a little philosophical, which is what is currency? Um, in economics, we actually have a definition for currency because we have a definition for every word. We like definitions way too much. Um, trust inscribed. That is the definition of currency. Um, so in economics, currency is has no value. Um, it is merely the means in which they, uh, the means in which people transact. Um, so if we follow that de- that classical definition of trust inscribed, um, it, what it means is that do do the individuals trust that what they're exchanging has value and will be supported? Um, so as long as long as a nation or as long as it's an institution large enough that everybody buys into, accepts a cryptocurrency as being worth money, then absolutely it has value. Um, I'm personally more excited for the blockchain portion of cryptocurrencies. I think that's going to be very quickly adopted by government. It's going to, if we can better create better information and better information flows, which blockchain does very well, um, I think you're going to see a lot of benefit to governments that will adopt it. Um, I always joke with people, like, what was, what, what was the first blockchain? And they go, you know, people say Bitcoin or something. I go, no, it's your passport. You, you carry it around independently. People look at it. They can tell you where you've been. And it allows you to freely uh, interact with different countries. Um, I think we'll see that adoption widespread. If we look at, say, the U.S. Marshall Islands, which adopted a cryptocurrency, Estonia, which is playing around adopting an official national cryptocurrency, um, we can see a lot of success of state-driven cryptocurrencies. Now, with that said, there's been some failures. The PetroCoin in Venezuela has uh, has pretty much flopped. But Venezuela has other issues that have nothing to do with that cryptocurrency that just have to do with um, with, with governmental structure. But as a whole, I, I think it do, it gives options. I think if a, if a government is, you know, the people trust their government to make fi- good financial decisions, and yeah, they're good, they can trust in the currency. Or they can choose to adopt a third-party currency like Ripple or something like that, where they can move, they can freely exchange regardless of government structure. Uh, Quincy is actually hosting a, uh, a cryptocurrency conference uh, in a couple months, so we are we're very forward on that. So this is a very good conference. This is a very good topic. Right, right, Eric. Now, my understanding, I I still don't know much about this space. Trying to understand, you know, neither I have dollars, neither I have cryptos, and neither I have enough of INR. I can only talk, ask questions. And try to understand a bit for myself and the audience. In terms of uh, cryptocurrency, suppose uh, a person like you, CFO of a uh, of a big uh, big city, there is a there are several individuals who, instead of you know having accounted money, and that you know, so it is taxed, so that money comes to you, and then you can plan for the future or for the present. Now, if if people have an option that the money is not accounted and they can simply transfer it to anywhere else and can just move off from that place, you don't get revenues. How do you ensure? You get my point. How do you ensure? How do you plan your budgets? Then who wants to pay taxes? Will that be who wants to pay taxes? Not even the president would want the want to pay taxes. Nobody wants to pay taxes. Nobody wants you know? to pay taxes. <laughs> so, so how do cities, states, 
and governments and countries they plan what do you see is the uh, or is my understanding incorrect no. how do they take care of unaccounted money if i do if i do unnecessary uh, you know under uh, underhand transactions and i have billions of uh, rupees i can suddenly shift to anywhere in the world with nothing in my hand and people will think i am just a poor poor guy yeah. how do you how do sovereign states take care of this yeah i mean you just laid that out perfectly that is the big fear every government has like, let's be honest that's what it is um so at the local level um the vast majority of our budget is actually paid for via property tax so we just you you have an address a physical address and we charge you for having that physical address um uh, it's hard to move a house as an asset that's why local government relies on that some state governments also some state and county governments also have property taxes the us government does not uh most countries do not have a property tax you can see taxes being in this in the, what you laid out what you laid out that beautifully i mean that is the perfect summation of what every public finance person's fearing um what's actually going to happen i think you're going to see taxes shift away from income in taxes that revolve around liquidity and more towards capital they're going to tax you because okay so because you have a big house or because you have a private jet and you're going to because they can see that asset they can view that asset and they can appraise that asset um some of what you see with property tax but it's going to make i think it's going to make income tax very very difficult because you you can pay somebody just like you said snap your fingers move it you never like there's no chain left behind that their record that governmental record left behind um so i think if you see widespread adoption of a non-governmental entities crypto that you are going to see taxes being shifted more towards the capital side which some people might might say that's good i have my i'm kind of i don't like taxing capital because capital's what grows economies so i'm a hit or miss on it but if you you got to collect tax revenue you got to pay for national defense you got to pay for social security you have to pay for this plan you can't just say oh whoops hey good job guys <laughs> just not collect any money and 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 will it wipe down uh, wipe out the, all the banks everywhere then means the whole reasoning is going that banks are overcharging that they are you know you got to use several banks in the whole process of you know transacting you got to use the swift system other system so wh- what is the message are we saying are we saying banks are bad uh, is it, or is it we are trying to replace them or is it like we are coming down with an extra system that is going to be helpful to everybody so as an individual i really don't get the messaging what exactly is going to happen in the coming days or years um so i i think the uh, i think it's an extra system that helps um banks do such interest when, when you have economies that have their own currencies banks are super important because they control the monetary supply through what the government allows them to do some called fractional banking so if the government if the united states government wants to add a thousand dollars to the economy it doesn't add a thousand dollars it could it could just simply change the fractional banking ratio to a point one and suddenly if a bank has a hundred dollars it now has a thousand dollars it can lend out um so ba- banks also provide services to allow the economy to grow by lending out money a cryptocurrency because it is decentralized can't lend out money bitcoin can't function as a bank uh can't lend out money with some interest rate to get it back later 
Um, and, and so banks will still serve a very, very strong per, uh, purpose. On top of that, they're insured. So in the United States, they're insured up to $250,000, which covers the vast majority of Americans' liquid assets. What I, what makes me excited for cryptos, what makes me excited is what it's going to do, not for the top 20% of income earners, but for the bottom 20% of income earners. I think it will help you know the mom and pop shop down the street who can't afford those fees, who isn't using banking to expand their business, but instead now has a low to no fee, highly reliable um, system to pay vendors. And on top of that, they don't have to travel 20 miles to a bank. They don't have to worry about you know a, a consistent electrical connection. Um, and it, that currency is backed by a very well understood blockchain group. So like, I'm actually more, see, like, I know I'm kind of weird. Like everybody's like, Oh, what's Musk going to do with this and that? I'm like, no, no, no. I want to see what the lady down the street who is selling cucumbers, I want to see how it's going to help her out. I think, right. and that's where you're going to get the best economic return is helping the lower 20% in income. Grow. That's your biggest return. So that's what I'm excited about. So, so you think it will help the lower 20% if, if it comes in the right manner? And we have evidence of that already happening in Africa. Okay. So Africa is okay. really unbanked. Okay. Okay, so Eric, but what about inflation? Me, as far as I understand, now everybody can, you know, of all these cryptos, uh, they can mine as much as you know, if I'm uh, correct, as much as they want. Or and if they say that no, we have only a limited number of you know uh, cryptos or coins that we'll mine, then you know, uh, as because nobody knows who controls them, is it? Uh, and at what stage, who controls it? Is it like going to be the Federal Reserve or the RBI like in India, Reserve Bank of India? So I want to understand that part. See, anybody can say anything. But how do you actually manage it? Not that I don't trust. I On the face of it, I trust everybody. And how do you manage? Because if they continue mining, you know, cryptos and coins, then how does it impact inflation? Does it impact inflation at different places? Because I understood that currency was vis-a-vis -vis all the you know goods and services that you had, all the actual assets that you had, and according to that you need. Otherwise, the inflation will go out of hand. What will you do with all that? You know, either dollar or any any other currency if it is not vis-a-vis uh, -vis in terms of inflation. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. So like, they they are completely exposed to inflation. There is nothing special about a cryptocurrency that stops it from inflation. They are fiat currencies. Gold isn't even protected from deflation. When the Spanish, when the Spanish uh, went over to South America and they looted all those cities of gold, that caused the gold price in Europe to crash. Um, okay. That is one hundred. So cryptocurrencies, they are not commodity currencies. There's nothing about a cryptocurrency that has any real world value. It's all about trade. Is it accepted? Is it usable? Um, so they, there's nothing stopping them from having rampant inflation. In fact, if we follow traditional inflation models, which which may not apply to cryptocurrencies, the more a cryptocurrency becomes accepted, the more inflation it will experience because part of the monetary base calculation is money velocity. How quickly does a dollar move? So if you have a cryptocurrency that's been getting value and suddenly becomes very tradable, that's money velocity, which will have the same effect of just mining billions of more coins. And I think that's something that's never talked about. It's like, no, they can still experience inflation and experience inflation quite quite heavily to be honest um so, and because they're so new in the world 
that we don't know when that's going to happen. That's why car- cryptocurrencies that are like state backed, like the Marshall Islands uh, cryptocurrency or Estonia's, make me a little more confident that they're going to be the first type of cryptocurrency. Um, but yeah, they can still experience inflation because just perfectly like you said, you can just mine them. Even cryptocurrencies that have a capped number of coins in them, which there are some, they don't necessarily, that just because they're capped doesn't mean they can't experience inflation. They suddenly become traded very heavily. Then absolutely, uh, I'll give you an example. If the Federal Reserve, print, uh, the Treasury printed a trillion dollars and put it in a room, it has no effect on inflation. Just right. like if you mine a trillion coins and put them in a room, no effect on, on inflation. But if they release that trillion dollars or the coins, you released a trillion coins, you're going to have massive inflation. <clears throat> and right now, a lot of cryptocurrencies are just sitting in wallets. They're doing nothing. So I get nervous when they get released, when they start being used as a means of transaction. I think there's inflation coming for them. I really do. Right. Right. Eric. Even I am trying to, I don't have, as of now, I don't have any view on cryptocurrency. I am trying to ask as many questions from wherever it is possible and trying to understand this whole space as to which direction things are moving and uh, what exactly this uh, this stuff is all about. Because then there comes the NFT and then, you know, how how, how it's coming together. Then Because as of now, there are 8,000 cryptocurrencies. Then when it becomes much more leg- towards legitimacy, then there might be 20,000. How do you deal with that situation will each each state in the usa have their own adoption of individual different cryptocurrency or will it be the same one because us states are very powerful they have a lot of independent decision making they can have so that will happen even in india but as of now the government is very strongly uh, uh, it has been taxed heavily and as of now we don't have we have we, we don't consider it as a currency at all we just consider it as a crypto and, and any other digital asset. Now, so it's been a long discussion, but a very fruitful one. At least I am getting more educated and trying uh, and understanding things from that perspective. Now, coming back to the economics itself, uh, uh, Eric, you talked that you know economics should be presented in unbiased, apolitical, and stripped of formality. Yeah. When do you think? This whole economics from for the people shifted towards economic for the government or for the political systems. Uh, you know, I'll not go at political leaders because this is a global world. Everybody wants to be in power forever. You can't do that. That's human, human, human desire. Only a few are, you know, bereft of it. Now, how do you see how is politics affecting? Uh, economics, how is market affecting economics that from being economics for the people, it has become more for the market and the political system. How do you look at somebody who has studied economics the way it was? Yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, there's a, I, when I was younger, I used to think economics followed politics. And as I got older, I now know that politics follows economics. No matter what political system you want or whatever political party you subscribe to, no matter where in the world, you do not suddenly get to forsake economics. You can ignore economics. Oh, you can absolutely ignore economics. It doesn't go away. It will follow you. It will find you. Economics is a sandstorm. You can have any policy you want. 
And if it doesn't follow good economics, it may work in the short run, then the long run is going to bury you. Um, people like to ignore that. People like to put their fingers in their ears and hum. Um, just like people want to stay in power forever. And what what I see from, from my viewpoint on economics, it, it, when it gets mixed in politics, is that it doesn't get used properly. It gets argued against. Economics is a brick wall. It's a brick wall. You can argue with it all day long. It's not going right. to change. You're better off using that brick wall to build a foundation of good policy and not just scream at it. Um, and what we see is what I've seen and what I've studied and what I've seen in person uh, is that when economics is used, it is acknowledged and used. It's amazing how well it can help people. It's amazing how it can lift people out of poverty. Um, and what I think happens a lot of times is that the answers aren't fun. Um, the answers, if you follow the economic rationale, the answers can sometimes feel counterintuitive. Um, it is counterintuitive that increasing minimum wage decreases weekly income. It, that's a fully established observed fact. And, and people don't like that because they want an easy solution. Economics does not provide easy solutions. It provides usable solutions, but a lot of times they're not easy. Um, and I think if we break down economics for everyday economics and so the average person can feel that this is a field that they know because they can, everybody can learn economics, um, then we can really start helping these policies and these policies have become more palatable because the average person can understand them. Um, because trust me, everybody can understand economics. It's not, it's not an elitist field. It is a, everybody has the ability to understand it. They just need to give it a chance. Right. Right. Now, Eric, my last question to you, uh, to understand from you is that, you know, you say that economics, if they, if it doesn't, it does not have all the answers, it may not, know some things but it's very good at making guesses at least it will give you something from there now can you help me as uh, understand about that is what does firstly does economics does not know and secondly if it does not know how does it help uh, in making guesses yeah so um economics we have uh you know it's kind of funny to think about it like we don't know everything but we're pretty good at knowing what we don't know. So there's stuff in economics. We have theories on like something called a Giffen good, which is something the more expensive it gets, people demand more of it, which makes no sense. But every uh, once a year, there's a card game company here in the United States that just, just as a joke, starts selling the product for higher and higher prices and people buy it. So economics, one of the pillars of economics is people behave rationally given the information they know. So we, we study asymmetries in knowledge a lot. And it is weird. You can have two people talk the same exact thing, and they can take two different views on it. And that comes down to people who are just weird. I'm a weird guy. Everybody's weird. We're all unique, and that's kind of the beauty of economics. So we, there's a lot of stuff we don't know because we don't fully understand why people make decisions. If, if you could fully understand why everybody makes every decision they make, we would be able to solve every problem. But we're not. I mean, we're never going to. That's a, We're getting close to it. Um, now, how is it good at making guesses? What we've avoided this topic probably the entire time is that economics loves math. Economics loves advanced analytics. So what we can do is that economics takes the qualitative nature of people and combines with the quantitative uh, nature of science, and we can combine those together and perform different models and different analytical processes that can help us get really good guesses. And then we can even measure those guesses and see how accurate they are to themselves. In as you go, as time goes on and on and on and on and on, we can refine those decisions. People forget that macroeconomics isn't even 100 years old. It was founded in 1927. In microeconomics, if you 
consider utilitarianism a form of it, is less than 200 years old. Um, so we're a young field. We're not physics. We're not calculus. It's twice as old as, as microeconomics. So we're getting there. We're, I think we're making some good strides as an early field. <laughs> right, right. Now, Eric, in terms of, you see, a lot of people say that, you know, don't listen to economists. They have been proven wrong again and again. Even a lot of people who relate themselves to the markets or in terms of, you know, startups or people who are trying to create unicorns from one day, day one. Now, sometimes, you know, that the numbers they are putting forward are wrong. They are just building something, you know, in thin air. And economists keep on telling the facts, but nobody sees it. They only look at the voices. How do you see things as an economist? And then, you know, it's like there is a bust. Yeah. Um, so economists are often wrong. Economics is really wrong. Um, so it's, you know, it's our job as economists to, tr to translate these things. And a lot of times we translate them poorly. Um, I would say a lot of times economists, we may know, have a good idea what's going to happen based on history, but we have a hard time discerning if something's a short-run event or a long-run event. You have a hard time telling if inflation's going to last. We could tell you inflation won't be like this in three years, but I can't tell you inflation's going to be like this in three months. And that kind of puts people off. So people like very, very, especially because it's a science, people, they want a very, you know, line in the sand to when something's going to happen. And economics isn't built that way. We're building confidence intervals. We're pretty sure something's going to happen sometime. Uh, which can feel very, very counterintuitive and very anti-science, but it's just how our field's built. In the long run, we're very, very good at predicting when things are going to happen. There is no economist who didn't think inflation was going to hit us like this. Every economist, the minute in the United States, we were spending two, three trillion dollars uh, over budget. We knew this was going to happen, but we couldn't have told you it was going to happen in May of 2022. We just knew it was going to happen eventually. Um, so a lot of the ways, like when I, I talk, cause I, I hear that a lot people say like, oh, econ, econ, I was told one time economists need to go to common sense school, which is funny because the nickname of economics is common sense in a language we don't understand. Um, to what I say about that is we don't get, uh, we don't get, uh, discouraged. We keep making that step forward. Sometimes you're walking in sand. Sometimes you're walking on asphalt. And that's the beauty of the field is that even when we fail, we go back and look at our models and say, oh, this failed. How can I fix this? So next time I get it right. And the next time I get it right after that. Um, so one of the ways we stay on track is by really not being discouraged. Let's keep adding to the field. Economics is one of those fields that's just going to keep growing and good for it. Right, Eric. Right. I think I've asked a lot of questions. You have answered them very, very nicely. And I've come out, you know, I, I come out as a better learned man in terms of whatever, uh, uh, you know, I knew earlier on. And... All thanks to you of different questions on economy, uh, economist, uh, cryptocurrency, uh, on Quincy, on everything else. You know, so, so many things I asked you and it's it been a good, great discussion. I really enjoyed learning from you. I had a blast. Thank you so much for having me on. Happy Independence Day, too. I mean, I, the, it's always nice when a billion plus uh, uh, people in a, the world's largest democracy can celebrate independence. That's always a good day. Right. <laughs> Right. Thank, so thank you very much and have a great day and hope to talk to you again very Absolutely. soon. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.